Merry Christmas to all of you. If you haven't done so, say hi, Merry Christmas to your neighbors or people behind you or in front of you. You can wave or you can shake hands depending on your comfort level. Thank God for, for, for the Sunday. A special welcome to our visitors, uh, family members. Uh, special welcome to the youth service. Today is a combined service with the youth. Um, out of town, returnees from college and other functions. It's good to see you all coming back together for Christmas. Um, it is wonderful that this Sunday and on this year, we are able to have communion, Sunday worship, and Christmas on the same day. So cherish this moment because the next Christmas that falls on Sunday will be on 2033. That's about 11 years away. And we are grateful that today we can come together for this celebration. As you remember, for the regular church members, beginning in December, we embark on the preaching series on the birth of Christ, which is based on Matthew chapter 1 and 2. You know, to most of us, Christmas message is pretty much the same every year because the same content is taken basically from Luke chapter 1 or 2, Matthew chapter 1 and 2, plus a few prophecies from the Old Testament like Isaiah and Micah. So what's more in there to preach about Christmas? Well, it is true that the message is pretty much the same, the same old story, but you have changed since last Christmas. Every year you are different. You might have moved to a new life stage from singlehood to married, to have kids, to be grandparents, emerged from a crisis in your life, in your family. You might have experienced brokenness in a major way. You might have recovered from a major setbacks or disappointments in life. And now you are more honest with yourself. That's typically what happens when you are broken. You have mellowed somewhat, typically happened when you are broken. You know your limitations now, and you are more ready to listen to God. And could it be you this year as you come and hear this same old message, but it's different because it touches you in a way that God wants you to be touched and respond to His message. So this morning, I want to share with you, for unto us a child was born. I want to take us beyond the birth of Christ to move forward to show you what is the intention of the birth of Christ that is being worked out as he continues to move forward together. So based on Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. You can look at the screen or your handheld appliances or a paper Bible, but I'm going to read to you the same passage that is so familiar, though not the conventional Christmas story, but it is birthed out of Christmas story. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan was going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. 
But when they saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who want you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from the stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. For unto us a child was born, because the king has come. The king has come. Verses 1 and 3. Remember through the preaching series that we shared with you in the past few weeks, we are reminded that the king has come. An angel spoke to Joseph in Matthew 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The king has come. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, quoting Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is with us. He was born. The wise men asked King Herod, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, it says, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. For unto us a child was born. The Magi came to worship the child, the king. Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, quoting prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, says, From Bethlehem shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The ruler has come. He is the king. The king has come. Now, John the Baptist, the forerunner to prepare the way for the king because the king has come. We want to move beyond the birth. We want to move beyond the manger. We want to move beyond that night where the shepherds, the magi, or others who come to worship the baby, but the baby has grown up. Because in verse 1 it says, in those days... What days were those days? It has been 30 years since the birth of Jesus. Now the Son of God is ready to do what He is called to do, to save His people from sin. And John the Baptist is identified as the forerunner. You see, it was common in Jesus' day for forerunners to precede the king to announce his visit, to make sure the town was in good condition to receive him, and to even do minor road work to smooth the highway for him to travel. Forerunner is like a master of ceremonies of a major event. He introduces the main character, the VIP, so to speak, of that evening, and he fades into the background. That's John. That's the forerunner. The Isaiah who prophesies Jesus as the coming king, that he shall be called the Prince of Peace. And on the throne of David, he will reign with justice and with righteousness forever. It's the same Isaiah in verse 3, who, who prophesies that a forerunner, who is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
But the most important thing is the message in verse 2. John's message is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, Jesus will preach the same message when He begins His public ministry soon. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Exactly the same message. And you know, John the Baptist is doing his job because he represents the king well by sharing exactly the same message that the king will proclaim when Jesus comes to the scene to proclaim the gospel to the people. Repent, for the kingdom of God the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, repentance is not a popular word. Repentance is not about feeling sorry. It is a complete change of your attitude towards God. The primary meaning involves a turning from their sins to God in anticipation of the Messiah. Repentance may make a person feel sorry for his sins, but that sorrow is a byproduct and not the repentance itself. So when you turn to Christ, you must also turn from something. If you don't turn from something, then you are not really turning to Christ. Repentance demands a clear-cut decision. There's no ambiguity. There's no in-between. Repent for the kingdom of Heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is forthcoming because the king has come. Where is kingdom without a king? The king is here. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is first coming. The king has come. Jesus has come. The king has come to inaugurate his kingdom. But where is the kingdom? Where is God's kingdom today? You know, if Israel had accepted its Messiah, the earthly kingdom would have been inaugurated by the King Jesus. But because they have rejected the King Jesus as the Messiah, the kingdom of heaven is only ruling in the hearts of those who repent from sin and their sinful ways. At your heart and my heart, those who follow Jesus. But Christ will come again to establish the messianic kingdom. See, the message is very simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message is simple and yet powerful. And of all places that John the Baptist could have chosen, he chose to proclaim that message from the wilderness. Verse 1 says, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, because his audience are Jewish. The Jewish are forever reminded of their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And John evidently conducted his ministry there because of its rough conditions that were suitable to his appeal for repentance. And remember, when a forerunner begins to prepare the way, the king is not far away. The king is just around the corner. He is coming. What do you need to smooth out in your life today so that you can meet the king? Whether Christians or non-Christians. Could it be your bias? Your anger? 
Many people are angry with God. Where is God? Why is He absent? Where is God when I need Him? Maybe you're judgmental spirit. You have certain feelings about God. You have certain feelings about the church. You have certain feelings about Christians or the Bible. Your blind spots. Or could it be your stubbornness that is preventing for you to meet the King today? You know, we who live in this nation who embrace democracy do not always appreciate the coming of the King. Because the King Jesus comes to challenge your personal rights. He comes to challenge your personal freedom. He comes to challenge your self-sufficiency and your independence. He wants you to be aligned with Him because true freedom is found in Christ. True rights is under God's rights. True sufficiency is in Christ. And true independence is dependence on Christ to do what you feel free to do. The King comes to rule. And we tend to rebel against any form of ruling, whether God or human. We are open to a ruler only when there is anarchy, chaos, and lawlessness. When we are helpless, then we seek a ruler, a king. And that's what sin does to us. The king has come, but sin must be confronted. That's the second point I want to share with you. In verses 4 to 10, sin must be confronted. And you remember in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 to 21, when Christ was born, the angel told Joseph, do not be fearful to take Mary as his wife. It says, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You see, buried in the thick of the Christmas narrative is this profound statement, he will save his people from their sins. In fact, this is the core of the whole Christmas message. It's more than the Christmas trees or the Christmas lightings or the Santa Claus or even the dinner, the get-together. This is the core. He will save His people from their sins. If there is no sins, Christ doesn't need to come. But this is the last thing we want to hear on a Christmas day right? When was the last time you heard sin being mentioned in these few days? We try our best to erase sin from our memory, from our vocabulary. We find substitutes like, well, it's a disease. It's an inclination. It's an impulse. But it's more like addiction. It's from your DNA. Anything else but sin. We have a phobia to mention sin because to acknowledge our sinfulness is to confess that we need a Savior. And we are too independent to feel that we need a Savior. The King has come to deal with our sins and it begins with the forerunner. In verses 4 to 6, he was confronting the public about sin. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and the leather belts around his waist and his foot was locusts and wild honey. His dress clothes resemblance that of the Old Testament prophets like Elijah. 
His diet is a poor man's diet. His ministry is effective. In fact, that's probably the greatest revival in the greater Jerusalem. John the Baptist was preparing the hearts so that they will honor the king when he begins to preach. Huge crowd was responding to his call for repentance. His appeal is widespread from Jerusalem to Judea as far as Jordan, verse 5 says. And verse 6 tells us that John baptized them when they come to confess their sins. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And for the Jews, they were familiar with ceremonial washing as a part of the Mosaic system of worship. So when a Gentile is converted to Judaism, he or she underwent baptism. But John baptized Jews. That's unheard of in those years. The baptism served as a public testimony to their repentance and commitment to live a holy life. I don't know about you, but I know that it takes a lot for a person to confess their sins and to publicly commit to live a holy life. You can do that in your privacy. You can do that in your own bedroom. You can do it in your whole house, in your apartment. But to do it publicly, that's unheard of. There must be something more than more than whatever is troubling them in their hearts. What is that that drives them to all the way to Jordan and to confess and to receive baptism? Could it be uh, desperation? What drove them to desperation? Guilt? Shame? Sin? Could it be humility? What brings them to the point of humility? Could it be conviction? What kind of a conviction is that that will drive a man that goes all the way, 30 some 50 miles away to Jordan River and receive baptism and publicly acknowledge that I have sinned? It must be compelling enough for them to step out of their comfort zone to repent publicly. He was confronting the public. But secondly, verses 7 to 10, he was confronting the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Verse 7 says, When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brutes of viper, who want you to flee from the wrath to come? That was a fiery message. The Pharisees, the Pharisees follows the letter of the law of Moses. They are the fundamentalists of the day, so to speak. The Sadducees, the Sadducees denied supernatural happenings. They are very pragmatic. Whatever I see is true. Whatever I don't see, not true. They are the religious rationalists of the time. And they came. Verses 7 and 8, John rebukes their hypocrisy by calling them vipers, like snakes' subtle attack. These leaders came with ulterior motives to find faults in John so that they can accuse him, discredit his prophetic role, prophetic image. They must demonstrate fruits of repentance in verse 8. says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You know, in verse 9 tells us that the Jews believed that they would enter the Messianic kingdom simply because they were the children of Abraham. But John demanded 
evidence of genuine repentance instead of a mere complacency and hypocrisy and superficiality. Show me the fruits. That's John's message. A New Testament commentator, Mike Wilkins, comments on this passage and says, the kingdom of heaven will be accompanied by the wrath of God and the fire of eternal punishment. That's the truth. That's the fact. And those who respond to John's message and repent will escape God's wrath. But it must be on individuals' personal response to God. You have to make that step of faith personally to receive Jesus and to receive forgiveness of sins. One's religious or ethnic heritage will not help. John was challenging them just because you are descendants of Abraham and Abraham is claimed to be the father of faith. Doesn't make you a religious person, doesn't make you a Christian, doesn't make you a disciple of Jesus Christ. You have to receive and follow Jesus all the way personally in order to be received into the kingdom of God. The ethnic heritage will not help. And it was very clearly shared in this passage here. And John's message is equally confronting to us. Not only confronting to the publics and to the religious leaders, but it is confronting to us as well. It reminds some of us that just because you are born into a Christian family does not guarantee your salvation. And it reminds people like me, as a pastor, that just because we are called into full-time Christian ministry does not guarantee spiritual maturity or victory over temptations. We have to work out our salvation, work out our spiritual life, our spiritual discipline day by day and day by day to grow in the Lord. Sin as a bondage is vividly depicted in Paul's writing. In Romans chapter 7. In verse 15, he says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. You can hear the struggle there. Verse 18, he says, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry out the sense of helplessness. Verse 19 says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. I can't stop it. And in verse 24, out of his frustration and desperation, he cried out, Wretch man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And verse 25 proclaims, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin is real. Sin is a bondage. A Christian writer who wrote something on an Advent devotional said this way, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Indeed, sinners who are shaped by their sin in every aspect of their being. Sinners are washed in shame. Sinners under the burden of guilt. Sinners contaminated by the unclean. And Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But Jesus didn't come merely to mend and heal and clean and restore. He did this, of course, but He came likewise to display. Incarnation, 
to display, to reveal, to make known, to cast abroad the knowledge of His character, His will, the radiance of His glorious self-knowledge. Jesus came into the world to display Himself to those lost and buried in ignorance. Our hope is in Emmanuel, God with us. He comes to display uh, His goodness and His holiness that we may follow Him and believe in Him. And that's the hope we have. The King has come. And finally, in verses 11 and 12, the king will judge. The king has come. Sin has to be confronted. The king will judge. Again, this is not the conventional Christmas message. We hear love. We hear incarnation. We hear God becoming man and live among us. But he's the judge. The fact that he comes will also be only truthfully proclaimed that not only he loves the world, but he will also judge the world because he's righteous. Verses 11 and 12 says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing forks at his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. See, John's message is pretty fiery. You may wonder whether John the Baptist is preaching condescendingly. Does he possess that holier-than-thou superiority? Or was he being judgmental like, I hope you roast in hell? Or he was just being sarcastic? I've told you so, suck it up. But verse 11, he says, I am not worthy to carry his sandal. He came as a servant. He came in humility, pleading and calling people to come to the king because the king has come. If you remember in John chapter 1, verse 29, the same John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, him included. John the Baptist included that the Lamb of God, the King, takes away the sin of the world, including John the Baptist's. John the Baptist needs the Lord. Again, in John chapter 3, verse 30, he confessed, He must increase, but I must decrease. Christ must increase. And John, I am John the Baptist, John the forerunners, I must decrease. You see, John knows his role and identity. He's sent by God as a forerunner. He acknowledges that the coming Messiah is mightier, he said. He's mightier in every way. And Jesus is so glorious to John that he confessed he's not even worthy to perform the lowest job of a servant, to carry his sandal. How low can you get to, even among the servants? But John also viewed Jesus as mighty. John's baptism is a water baptism for repentance, while Jesus' baptism with the Holy Spirit entails a spiritual conversion. John the Baptist can help people to make a commitment and say, that I want to be ready to receive Christ. But Christ coming into your life makes transformation. Turn your life around. Only Christ can do that. He's mightier. And for some people, this baptism with fire means regeneration, but for others, it represents 
judgment. Fires comes to a Christian as a fire from the Holy Spirit to awaken us, to revive us, but fire coming to a non-Christian is a judgment from God. It hinges on your response to the king's invitation. The Jesus who is mighty to save is also the mighty judge. Verse 12 says, His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's the judgment language used in the Bible. The chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. Judgment will come to those who come with impure motives. And it will be imminent, John reminds his audience. But those who come with sincere motives of repentance and confession of sin will be prepared for the coming of the Messiah and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And that's the good news of Christmas. You have a choice. He invites you to come and follow Him. Many feel that they are abandoned by God today. They are left behind in this lonely planet, trying to make sense out of their existence, hoping to find meaning in whatever years they might have on this earth and to make the best out of it. But the King has come. We can choose genuine repentance to receive forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God the Father. So today I urge you to heed the word of the forerunner, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And my Christmas message to you today is Jesus the King invites us to repent of our sins so that we are freed from God's righteous judgment. The King has come. So Jesus the King invites us to repent of our sins so that we are freed from God's righteous judgment. What will Jesus say to you this morning? I think to the long-time Christians, that's many of you who are sitting there, Jesus is saying, don't just become religious. Don't follow me out of religious duties. Walk with me. He's saying to the Christians who, are, who have been following Jesus for many years, walk with me. Refresh your Christmas story by preparing him room. Let the King of glory enter in. What is God saying to the young marrieds and young families who are moving into a new life stage? Build, build a marriage is hard. Raising kids is tough. Stay connected with your church family and lean on each other to journey together. So young couples and young families, prepare him room that the King of glory enter in. Some of you who might be celebrating Christmas alone, that's very, very difficult. What is Christ telling you? He's saying, I am Emmanuel, I am with you. Light a candle for me to symbolize my presence with you. Let's dine together. Let's have a meal together. Those who are, who are having Christmas to celebrate all by yourself and alone, prepare him room that the King of glory enter in. 
and to the youth who join us for this worship. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 9 is what God wants to tell you. Rejoice, O young men and women, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and, your si- and the sight of your eyes. Do whatever you want, basically. But know that for all those things, God will bring you into judgment. What is Christ telling you? Every decision has consequence. Every decision you make has consequences. So choose me. Choose the king. Christ the king. Prepare him room. Let the king of glory enter into your youthful life. What is Christ telling the middle-aged who are sitting in our midst as well? You are caught in the middle of everything when you are middle-aged. Lean on me to carry you through, Christ is telling you. I am the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. So middle-aged individuals, prepare him room that the king of glory enter in. And to the seniors who are sitting in our midst or who are watching from online worship, Christ is telling you, grow, oh, gracefully. Grow, oh, gracefully. I am your shepherd, and I will lead you to green pastures and quiet waters. So seniors, prepare him room. Let the king of glory enter in. And to all Christians, what is God telling us today? What is Christ telling you and me today? Worship me. Worship me. I am your king. I am worthy of your worship. So everybody, prepare him room. Let the king of glory enter in. Would you do that? Let's pray together. Father, we come together with humility. We come together with gratefulness. We come together to worship the king. Because the king has come. And the king has given himself to be nailed on the cross, to die on our behalf so that we can receive forgiveness of sins and be reconciled with the Father. And that's so wonderful about this Christmas message. It's the King has come, He has died for us, He has risen for us, He has ascended for us, and He will come again. Help us to rejoice together and to prepare Him room and invite the King of glory to enter into our lives, to guide us, and to walk with us. And Father, I pray that this message will will be received by everyone in this congregation so that we are able to grow together. May you be glorified. May you receive our adoration and praises in every way as we come before you and worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.